Hey, family. Today, our guest is Alelia Bundles. Now, I'm really excited to be able to say that Alelia is now a friend of mine. She's been a shero of mine for some time, as has her very famous great-great-grandmother, Madam C.J. Walker. You know, Alelia is well known for having written the book On Her Own Ground about the life and times of Madam C.J. Walker that went to Netflix as a series and is still one of its most popular are playing uh, uh, today. But here's the thing. Alelia is in her own right quite an accomplished woman. Beyond writing books, she's also been a network journalist and executive. And, you know, I learned a lot about the work that she did as she worked in the time in TV when there were only three uh, channels, ABC, NBC, and CBS, and then there was PBS. She's contributed to all of them, and she's amazing in the work she has done. Alelia is a magna cum laude graduate of Harvard, and she got her journalism degree from uh, the Columbia School of Journalism. She's continued to be a major resource for many as they can do research, among which she was a researcher for Alex Haley. We all appreciate Alex Haley's work uh, with Roots. Uh, but you know, today, I have her here so that you can just listen and enjoy as she shares her life and her lessons. Alelia Bundles, my new friend. Wow. I mean, we met under some of the most incredible, incredible circumstances, didn't we, Alelia? Absolutely. What an amazing uh, weekend to be with 1,200 accomplished, amazing women at the Bellagio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at the Bellagio. And, you know, to manage that, and we were all very COVID appropriate uh, to manage that, and to still have such a great greeting of hellos and first meets and seconds. And, you know, it felt more like a homecoming than actually people meeting people, didn't it? It really did. I mean, there were people that we, I mean, we ran into old friends, all of us, but there, but everyone was there was, um, had something that they had done. Nobody was bragging about what they had done, but you knew that everybody there was accomplished in some kind of way. And, they, and people were quite generous about sharing what they knew, about trying to help you do whatever you were doing. It was really a great uh, weekend. It so, so was. And, you know, Black Enterprise has done so much over its history. And you have a better intimate history with Black Enterprise than I do, because while I certainly have a great relationship with ownership and the team there, and I've been featured in the magazine, that's not my industry. That's your industry. And to have them acknowledge us in this way and support us in this way, I'm still kind of bubbling from it, aren't you? Well, you know, and it really does mean something when your own community uh, honors you. And I think we both come to this, uh, to the connection with Black Enterprise, you know, in our own way. You have a personal relationship with the family. And I really feel fortunate that uh, Mr. Graves was so kind in helping us to promote Madam Walker's legacy all along the way, featuring her in a magazine. And, and I think one thing that's particularly special to me long before I met the Graves, um, my dad's company was one of the Black Enterprise 100 in the early days. And so I knew that it meant a lot to be 
recognized by Black Enterprise. And then years later for the, you know, the work that I've been doing, like you, you know, you, you plant seeds, you don't really do it because you're looking for recognition. You do it because you just, you're telling a story or you're trying to inspire somebody. And then when those seeds blossom and they might be of uh, use to others, that's really the icing on the cake. Well, I got to tell you, you are the cake and the icing in this instance. I mean, when we consider the huge work of your legacy and how you've taken that and not let it overpower you, you are a woman in your own right doing amazing and historic things. And I, I, I want to get into all of that. I think to platform a conversation that helps us to really understand the scope of what you've uh, lived with, through, and for all your life, it's important for us to understand how you see your relationship with your legacy. I mean, everybody knows who knows anything about me that I have from early in my life, cited Madam C.J. Walker as my shero. You know, when you leave the name Elretha Bryant, who is my mom, the next name you see as a shero is Madam C.J. Walker. And here you are with many people, I'm sure, bringing this to you and you accomplishing in your own right. What has it meant to you to live through and for such a legacy? So Janice, like you, my mother is the most important person for me and my inspiration and my, and my development. And it really is because of my mother that I'm able to you know, approach this legacy that could be kind of overwhelming, but I'm able to approach it in a way that's comfortable for me. So when I was growing up, my mother was vice president of the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company. She went to work every day in the Walker building in Indianapolis. And sometimes I would go with her to her office and play on her typewriter uh, and her adding machine in the days before calculators and computers. And I was, I really just, without really understanding what was going on, you know, you're just following along with your mom. Uh, I think back on that and I think the example that she set for me and the way that she interacted with the ladies who worked in the office. When we would ride up the elevator with Mary, the elevator operator, they always had some kind words for each other and a little bit of gossip as well. And then we would go to the restaurant that was there. Miss Griffin, who ran the cashier, also worked in the factory. And they all seemed to like my mother. I mean, I didn't really, it didn't register for me that that's what was going on. But now that I look back on it, that there was a mutual respect. And then I would see that you know, every quarter she would be preparing for board meetings. I didn't know really what a board meeting was. But when I think about that, my mother in many ways was modeling for me what it meant to be a boss and to be a boss who had um, respect and empathy for the people with whom she worked. But her area, her interest was the Walker Company. That was her family. My dad was president of Summit Laboratories, another black hair care company. He had worked briefly for the Walker Company after my parents were married, but he was actually hired away. And my real passion was writing. And both of my parents encouraged that rather than saying, well, you have to do what we're doing. You know, we're, they're not, they weren't imposing that on me. So by the time I developed my career and my expertise as a journalist, 
then I was being able to approach the Walker story in a way that was comfortable for me. So I, I just really credit my parents with letting me find my own passion. And fortunately, that passion led me back to being the person who gets to tell the story. And you bring up two things that really I want to uh, cover uh, right now. One of them is um, to know how old you were when you really realized the impact of the legacy of your family. And then the second is more around your conversation about seeing your mom and understanding what it is to be a boss. Uh, so often today we hear people talk about being a boss lady or a boss babe, and it has very little to do with the empathy and respect for others, especially those who are in your enterprise or in your inner circle. Uh, it's all more about, you know, being grandiose upon yourself. That's exactly right. Being grandiose. And that was the opposite. Uh, but, you know, when I when I was growing up, the silverware that we used every day had Madam Walker's monogram and the china that we used on special occasions had belonged to Madam Walker. We had this beautiful sterling silver punch bowl that my mother would use to make eggnog at Christmas. But those were just kind of tangible items, things that had belonged to Madam Walker and to her daughter, Alelia Walker. So that was how I was really first introduced to them, but I was following my own dreams, you know, working on the school newspaper and, um, you know, those kinds of things, having summer internships in journalism. But it was really when I got to graduate school at Columbia in journalism that my advisor, Phyllis Garland, the only black woman on the faculty whose mother had been uh, an editor, had been the editor at the Pittsburgh Courier and Phil had worked at Jet and Ebony. And when Phil was my advisor and we sat down to talk about my master's paper project and I gave her some you know, lame cliche topics. And at the end of the conversation, Phil said to me, uh, your name is Alelia. And my name of course has this unusual spelling, A apostrophe, capital L-E-L-I-A. Uh, and she said, do you have any connection to Madam Walker and Alelia Walker? And I suspect Phil knew the answer to that, but I wasn't telling people that this relationship. And, and I said, yes, that's my family. And Phil said, that's what you're going to write about. And that was the fall of 1975. Uh, and Phil really was the person who changed my life because she recognized it. Uh, if I'd had anybody other than Phil as my advisor, I don't know that I would have written maybe years later, but that was the power of a professor and somebody validating my story. And even when I didn't understand how important it was. That, you know, that's incredible. And you say, even when you didn't understand how important it was, uh, it hits me because, you know, I remember, um, and, and, and coming full circle, we were just talking about our experience uh, with Black Enterprise and uh, being honored there and being networked there. That's how I learned about who Madam C.J. Walker was. Many of us and many of the people who came before us who had um, the, 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 had the care that she brought to her products and in teaching us how to be uh, our full selves as women, working outside the home or working inside the home, whatever our path was, we could do that with the elegance, not just in how we looked, but how we groomed ourselves emotionally. She was about all of that. And so when I think about you and I think, and I hear you say, you know, your mom, as with my mom, were our role models 
that's a lot in one circle, isn't it? In such a short time in our generations of people. Uh, and you captured so much of that. Uh, but before you captured that, in, and, and let me just applaud you for the work you're doing to not only capture the history, to share it forward, and to let it be in a way that teaches as well as entertains. I just got to applaud you for that, and we're going to talk about it. I want to go back, though, to how you went in, you, you followed your own path. I mean, you pursued uh, news and journalism, and you saw that as an important profession, not just one that would be enjoyable for you. And I want you to talk about that because you had a lens, you had a lens to the world that was broader than a lot of little girls of color at your age at that time. You know, I think we're really fortunate if at yeah, an early is that age. True, Olivia? Is that yeah. true? No, but it's mm -hmm. true. I mean, I think I was really fortunate that I discovered a passion at a very young age. And, you know, and I joke sometimes and I say, I couldn't carry a tune. So it was clear that I was <laughs> not going to be, you know, the great singer. That was That was not happening. So that door was closed and I was okay on the clarinet. Uh, in the band, but the, you know, I did not have great musical talent, but what I did love was writing. And mm -hmm. at eight years old, I wrote a short story about going to the moon. And this is before, you know, before 1969, long before 1969. So that hadn't happened, but it was my imagination. And one of my mother's friends who was a teacher uh, read the story and she sent it to a children's magazine. So at eight years old, I had a little story published. And then when I was in, when I went to junior high school, I started working for the school newspaper. And I was really fortunate that my advisor at the school newspaper entered us in contests competing with high school newspapers. And we won some of those contests. So he had really high standards. So I was learning how to be a journalist at 12 years old, even though, you know, I didn't know what that bigger picture was. And when you think about this, this is in the 1960s. And at that point, you know, women were not anchors on television or reporters on television. They weren't political reporters. At most, they might work for the women's page. But that landscape began to change in the 1960s and into the 1970s. And those doors opened up. So I knew I wanted to, you know, be a journalist, but I did, the landscape was so limited at that point. But by the mm -hmm. time I graduated from college, women had sued the television networks and had sued Newsweek because young women were hired as researchers and secretaries and young men were hired as desk assistants and assistant producers. And the young women stayed secretaries and researchers and the young men advanced to become senior producers and executive producers. So, so those doors opened at exactly the right time that allowed me to take advantage of that and to have a very different kind of career than I would have had even five or 10 years earlier. Do you have any uh, particular stories that you broke or that you covered that stand out for you right now? I mean, we're in such an interesting, and interesting is as polite as I can think to say it, uh, time now with news and with the advantage and sometimes disadvantage of technology, it's all coming at us at a rapid pace and is being curated by responsible journalism and irresponsible people who are not journalists. Um, 
what stands out for you that you were breaking back in the old days when uh, Leah didn't they didn't they have a saying something similar to this? True journalists ask who, what, when, where, how, and cover that before they do anything else. Wasn't yeah. that kind of the rule of thumb? That, yes, I mean, and it was. You know, you think about when I started. This is like 1976 when I began to work for NBC, and at that point there were three networks and PBS. So NBC, ABC, CBS, no cable, uh, no internet. So it was really just the evening news was watched by almost everybody. There was the three anchors and that's where Walter Cronkite was the, you know, the, the standard. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. while it wasn't perfect and there were still, there still were not, not enough women and not enough people of color in positions of decision-making there was um, a sense of we're telling the truth, we're um, trying to make a difference. And the and network television had really been quite instrumental in the civil rights movement because it was those network television crews who showed people being hosed and dogs attacking people in Birmingham and, and the, what was going on during that period of time. So there was some real positive social change that was happening as a result of that lens being focused on the inequality and the racism in the South. But as, to, you know, as time went on, I could see that there was an opportunity to tell a story, but the standard really was, we want to tell the story, we want to get it as accurate as possible. And there was less uh, profit motive for network television news. In some ways, the owners of the networks considered their news divisions as a prestige part of the operation. And they didn't feel the pressure. They thought it was of a, a lost leader. But as things began to change and as the economic model began to change, those news divisions, that's when you started seeing a lot more celebrity news, a lot more scandal. And then with the explosion of cable and that competition and the explosion of the internet and an entire disruption of the news model, uh, things began to change. So I was, I'm glad that I was there during the period of time when I was there, when the most important thing was getting facts on the air. Um, and I'm glad that I'm not there now. I'm still a news junkie. I still <laughs> read everything. I have way too many subscriptions, but it was a very different time. You know, of the stories that I, that I covered, I think one that stands out for me really as the pivotal moment was covering Jesse Jackson's 1984 campaign. Wow. And that was really interesting. And it just, and net, when you work, I worked at NBC News for about 13 and a half years and ABC for about 16 and a half years. So for a total of 30 years. But one of the things that the sort of your career path in network television news, you work in, uh, in New York, you work your way up or you work in one of the bureaus. I worked in the Houston Bureau, the Atlanta Bureau, and you cover you know, grain elevator explosions and hurricanes and those kinds of things, you know, just you're always on call. At that point, it was a beeper before we had cell phones. But, you you know, you're just kind of what, what they would call a fireman. You go to whatever is going on. But one of the ways that you move up in your career is to cover a political campaign, to cover a presidential campaign. And I got that opportunity in 1984. So traveled really all over the United States, including Central America, Cuba, Salvador, Nicaragua, um, with Jackson's campaign, covering the campaign, the, the convention in San Francisco in 1984. And it was just fascinating 
to see the black folks who came out who were, you know, it was the hands that once picked cotton can now pick a president. It was those kinds of stories. And I, I do have this really fun memory of being in San Francisco during the convention. And Willie Brown was Speaker of the House in California at that point. And he hosted this fabulous party in some of the warehouses on the docks in San Francisco. And it was uh, Jefferson Airplane and Sylvester and all of these entertainers. So that was the, that was the fun payoff for uh, nine or 10 months of, of not having enough sleep. <laughs> I think whether you were delivering the news or watching it, you weren't sleeping a lot during that particular campaign season. Everybody was glued to what was going on. And even those who didn't consider Jesse Jackson a serious presidential candidate certainly were paying attention to what he was saying and learning a lot about um, how to look at the process. Uh, a lot happened during that time, didn't it? A lot happened during that time. And you know, you, you look back on it, he was really um, you know, dismissed by a lot of the usual political pundits, but he won a lot of delegates and he forced the, a lot of the issues for he forced people to think about a lot of the issues that they wouldn't have thought about. And you know, certainly income inequality, he focused on people who were working two and three jobs and not making enough money. That's still a problem. He focused on um, LGBT rights. Obviously, he focused on African-Americans, but it really was a rainbow coalition. He was really showing the power of bringing people together. And his standing up for LGBT and now Q rights um, was quite an unusual thing for a politician who considered themselves seriously in the run at the national level to do at that time. Um, it didn't even appear as part of the questions or the interview process uh, when debates were occurring, yet he did stand up for that, didn't he? Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. Well, you know, um, when you talk about politics, your mom was very active at the local and state level as well. Can you talk about that a little bit and especially the impact it had on you? Certainly was, you know, my mom was um, one of the people who was at the polls, you know, a poll watcher. And, and I knew that that she was doing that. And I keep saying that I'm going to do that because I know how important it is that I can never get my schedule together. But she was very serious about playing that role. She would host fundraisers for people who were running for political office. And she was, uh, you know, on the PTA then. Um, on the school board, though she really only was able to serve for a short period of time on the school board, she was diagnosed with lung cancer. And so she really only attended a few meetings. But I know that was important to her because she saw the impact uh, in, in the school system that I, that I, where I attended school, we, it was a suburb of Indianapolis, Washington Township, that was predominantly white. And I, and I even say overwhelmingly white, when my high school, had 3,400 students and it was a four or 5% black. And that was you know, throughout the school system. And she saw the impact when black students were being suspended at a higher rate, when graduation rates were lower and she wanted to make a difference. She really saw that by speaking up and, and lending her voice that she could make a difference. Will you think about how you saw your mom's impact at the political level and then your impact and many others journalistically um, in the news and media. Um, 
blending those, how do you think we're doing right now? You know, Janice, I'm shaking my head because um, we are in a really, really difficult moment. I think that, you know, every day when I get up, I'm paying attention to the news. I, I read Heather Cox Richardson's letter from an American. That's my first, the first thing I read every day. I read some newsletters, New York Times and um, newsletters about what's happened in media overnight and what's, you know, what's going on in, in political circles. And we, we are really at a time where democracy is in peril because there are people who really, the, they are interested in power and in getting elected and in denying the rights, the right to vote in denying women uh, reproductive rights in making sure that black history is not taught in trying to um, suppress LGBTQ folks. So the, some of the doors that opened when I was graduating from high school and college in the early 1970s, where there were more rights for African-Americans, the voting rights bill, more rights for women, uh, more opportunities for uh, in corporate America, and at a sense that diversity was important and valuable those doors are being closed. And you know, we still have to fight because we, we can't let those doors close. But there are, when the Supreme Court is arrayed against you and when a, one political party is not interested in expanding the rights of all Americans, we are in a very, very challenging time. When you look at the role that uh, media and news plays in that, how do you think? Uh, how do you think we're doing? You know, it is such a mixed bag, as you said. There are some people who are really trying to do the right thing, and then there are some people who are absolutely um, trying to subvert the process. Who, who thrive on intentional disinformation and misinformation, and who know they are doing it. Uh, and then who have plenty of gullible people who go along with them and they know that they're misleading people, but they but that allows them to get reelected. And so they are intent on keeping that a narrative that is not true. This whole thing about the election being stolen. These, you know, when you listen to these, you read these tweets and you listen to these um, recorded conversations from um, leadership in the Republican Party and they're, they know that the election is not stolen. Uh, and they change, they've changed their tune immediately because they want to stay in power. So I think there is some fabulous journalism going on. Uh, that's why I, you know, ProPublica, Frontline, um, uh, The Grio, The New York Times, The Washington Post, they, there are lots of places that are really doing uh, great journalism. Judd Legum is a, is a newsletter that I read every day because he is um, doing a lot of investigative work on voting rights, on political contributions, on the pushback with school boards and teaching Black history. So I try to keep myself educated and I see that there is a lot of great journalism going on, but it does make me concerned when Elon Musk now owns Twitter, because that means a lot of the people who are really intent on 
telling lies and spreading lies are going to have a more comfortable platform. As a journalist, you believe in freedom of speech. How do you see that being? Uh, how do you how do you see objecting to him owning it being aligned with freedom of speech? Yeah, I mean, it's very complicated because we don't really know exactly what he means by freedom of speech because he's he's kind of all over the map and he because he has a lot of money he is able to you know sort of just to buy something, but not to have really thought through what this means. And so you can, I've read a lot of the articles where he says one thing here, he says something else there. Um, he's attacked people who um, have a more progressive point of view. Sometimes he's a libertarian. So I think we, we really won't know until we see what happens. But for me, free speech is, is um, yes, you're able to, express yourself, you're able to say, in America, you can say whatever you want to say. But there, but there's another line when you are attacking people and putting people at peril because you are making them a target. When you're trolling women, when you're saying on uh, Twitter or on your network that, well, let's just go kill that person. Let's attack that person. That, for me, crosses a line. There's something that's like yelling fire in the theater that the Supreme Court once said was over the line. And it's unclear now whether that will be considered over the line. There's so much to consider in that. I don't know if you're gonna be doing any work going forward, Alelia, on what you've just talked about in terms of um, freedom of speech, You know how far it's over the line or not. I'd be interested to read or watch whatever you do on that. But your body of work is really incredible. And just as we and little girls like me when I was growing up read about the phenomenal work that your great great grandmother did, I think uh, people are going to be reading about the work you've done. When you think about all the work you've done, and I shared a little bit of it in our introduction uh, of this conversation, and I, I certainly welcome you to talk about it. Where do you find most of your pride? And that may be an unfair question because I'm sure you love all of your work and you were intentional in all of your work. But um, talk about it a little bit. I mean, you know, you don't have to, uh, as you said, we went, we went for our great weekend where we met each other and we weren't walking around popping ourselves on the shoulder, but we were sharing our journey. And I'd love you to do a little bit of that right now about yours. We know that you are phenomenal in news and in media. Uh, and there's a lot more to you as well. You know, Janice, one of the things that I, you know, I do take a, some pride in is being able to encourage others. And I tell this story, you know, some people call themselves truth tellers. And I say, I aspire to be a truth teller, mm. that I am a truth seeker. And that comes, I think, from my years as a journalist and as a person who researches history and who really taught myself history because my history books in high school didn't tell our story. And I remember being a kid in the history class and I, my recollection is that I was the only black kid in the class. It was a, you know, an AP history course. And the only time black people were mentioned was as slaves. It didn't say enslaved as we now say, but slaves. And it literally said they were contented 
and they were better off as slaves because they were clothed and fed. Now, as a high school junior, I knew in my gut that that wasn't true, but I didn't have any research. I didn't have any facts to refute Oh my God, that. oh my God, oh my God, Alelia. Mm -hmm. I know, it's, it's what we- My 11th grade year was the year mm -hmm. that I, uh, you know, I, I attended segregated schools uh, for all of my uh, elementary through, um, I'm emotional right yes. now, you brought it to um, and, um, except the 11th grade and I'd gone over to the white school and had a history teacher who espoused exactly what you're saying. And to this day, I have difficulty sometimes speaking and I've talked about it publicly or get particularly tired on my right side where I bit so hard in my jawline, I broke That same history that you're saying you were being taught, I was being taught in North Carolina. You were being taught in Indiana. Yes, I mean that's and that's what those history books. That's what those history books taught us. And it was the United Daughters of the Confederacy, who had done a national campaign to um, influence what was in the history books. And it was a historian who was at Columbia named Dunning who really basically said the reconstruction was horrible and it was, you know, those black people shouldn't have been in charge and it was a failure as opposed to the violence, the racial violence that caused reconstruction to fail. And that's what most Americans have learned about history. And that's why what's going on right now with this pushback on not teaching anything about race and not teaching anything about what slavery was really about. That's why it's so dangerous because yet another 50 years will go by and people will be learning these lies and they'll be learning this framing that there was really no racism in America and that slavery wasn't really that bad. But, in, but the reaction that you're talking about, mine was, I still, I still have kind of a, get a pit in my stomach. You know how you feel that um, mm. you know, that tightening, that heat that you get. I still, when I think about that moment, being in that class and knowing that everybody was looking at me, you know, oh yeah, well, you're just a little Negro girl. And so that must be what, what your people think. And that's what your people are like. And you don't, you must've been happy. And so, um, so we don't have to really worry about it because you you were happy and then but what I didn't have and that, I mean that's for me why telling the stories are so important that I write the books I wish had been written for me and that mm. I do not want another generation of kids young people to not have this ammunition and this armor that we need to be able to fight back nobody was talking about Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman or even the people in my own family who were soldiers in the Revolutionary War who were free people of color in North Carolina, or the people who were industrious, who were doing something that prosperous made their lives better. Being burned. Yes. Instead, prosperous communities were being burned. Prosperous communities were being burned. And that's, yeah. I mean, that's why I do what I do um, and with such intensity because I want the facts to be available. And, you know, and I think about part of the reason Madam Walker's story is so important to me is that she 
you know, yes, she was born on a cotton plantation. She was uneducated and she you know, created a business. But the thing that's most important to me is that she created a business that allowed women to be economically independent. Mm-hmm. That And she realized, yes, they're hair care products. They wanted hair care products and that was good. But what they needed was education and what they needed was financial freedom so that they didn't have to work for somebody else. And, you know, and Janice, that's why I can say to you that you are a modern day Madam Walker, because what <laughs> you've done is to show people how they can create a life of economic opportunity, to create opportunities for other people. That's for me the payoff in telling the story. You overwhelm me. Oh, wow. Oh, you, you don't know. You don't know how big that was and is for me to hear you say that. Um, composing myself, um, Alelia, when you did the work to bring Madam C.J. Walker's life to movie, several women uh, spoke about you while we were at the Bellagio. And again, as you reminded us, these were quite prominent and achieved women themselves who were there. Uh, In speaking about you, common theme I heard was that you brought honesty to the movie. You, You didn't try to sugarcoat what was already a sweet story and you brought honesty to the movie. It, on hindsight, when I watched the, the, the series, on, I, I was thinking in terms of the, um, the, the enormity of me being able to see played out on the screen, the life of a woman I had so admired. And so I didn't bring any particular critique to it so much, of, like, so much as just my enjoyment of being able to see it. Um, retrospectively, and in particular, after those conversations at the Bellagio where, oh, that's her, wow, and she, and then that common theme of, you know, you were just so maybe you approached it differently, maybe you approached it more from, let's keep history accurate, and let's make sure, sure her story is history. Yeah, you know, it was, the the Netflix series is a complicated topic for me, you know, it was very entertaining. Octavia Spencer is, was great, you know, and I, when she would, whenever I would see her in scenes and she just sort of filled up the screen, for me, she embodied the dignity of Madam Walker. I particularly loved the scene in the marketplace where she's trying to convince women, you know, try this, here's our hair, is our power, she said. You know, those things were were important to me. And I think she really, tried to bring that dignity to to the character. But I, I did have some issues with it. You know, I from the very beginning, my when my book was optioned, I really thought that I would be included in helping to develop the storyline. And there were things that I thought were important. I really wanted to focus on Madam Walker being empowered by women, the women of her church, the women in the black, you know, black women's organizations. And then seeing a path that where she moved forward and then turning around and empowering other women. For me, that's the the storyline, that's the narrative. But 
the um, the head writer, uh, I had a conversation with the head writer early on, and I thought we were going to have ongoing conversations. And she said to me she wanted to focus on the conflict between Madam Walker and Annie Malone, her main competitor. And I said, you know, I think that's that's a part of it. But that wasn't the centerpiece of either of their lives. They were both very accomplished women. They were rivals. There's no question about that. But that wouldn't be my focus. And because she did not like that I said that, she made sure I was excluded from the conversations when those conversations were happening with the studios. And they really lied to me about, about that process. But I had what was called script review. My contract said I had script review. So they had to let me see the um the script and so finally two years later (laughs) when i was allowed to see the script the opening um script had madam walker and annie malone i mean literally physically fighting and calling each other the n-word and the b-word and i just was i was appalled and i said you know they were trying to appeal to a younger audience and i was hoping for hidden figures and I felt like I was getting Housewives of Atlanta. And (laughs) so that, so I was able to object to that and tone that down. And I said, you know, it's not that black women in the early 1900s didn't know how to throw shade, but they didn't throw it like that. (laughs) That was not- I I, I had no clue, no clue before asking you that question of that. I just know that those women were saying you had fought to try to bring a real story to the screen. And it's such a pleasure to hear you say out of your own mouth what that fight was that you had. Right. No, it was it was the fight. And at the same time, you know, I've written some articles about it. At the same time, it was it's it's complicated because I was really having worked in television for 30 years, you know, and but I was, you know, nonfiction news versus Hollywood, I know the importance of a premiere and what that means. And so I was really very reluctant to speak out before the show went on. And the very first week it was, um, it was the number one show on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think part of that was the star power of Octavia. Uh, and because it was- I helped name. make it that. And it was Thank you very power. much. Madam C.J. Walker. Right, the, right, the star power, Madam C.J. Walker. But then people who knew some of the details of the story, they started kind of picking at it. And I, and I just thought, you know, these the same things that I said to the producers, this is going to be a problem. And I'm trying to let you know, because I know this story really, really well. And they kind of dismissed that. And, um, but those were the things that, where there was objection. Now, having said that, we're now, two years later, and a lot more people know Madam Walker's name, and that's a good thing. But Janice, I'm working on other things. I mean, you, you know, I mean, you know, any, if you're in business, if you live your life, some things don't go exactly the way you want them to go, but you try to figure out what is it that I can take from this and what do I learn for the next project? So I'm working on some other things. And the book that I'm almost finished with is a biography on Madam Walker's daughter, who was totally, totally misportrayed in the film. I don't, it was like, oh God, it just gives me a headache thinking about it. But um, I'm working on, I'm almost finished with the book about her. And I think that is this kind of thing that 
will will warrant a series. Well, don't give away all of it, although true right. historians and, and people who care about it a lot have read and figured out some things and whether what we read is true or not. Uh, but what, what are some of the biggest conflicts you see to how she was portrayed in the movie to the truth? Yes. So, so for Madam Walker, I just wish there had been more about women empowering each other. I wish that um, Madam Walker's attorney, F.B. Ransom, that he, that he was such a straight arrow. I wish he had not been portrayed as somebody who had this sort of made up cousin who was a pimp and a numbers runner, which really wasn't true. But it made it seem like he was kind of corruptible and that was not true. With Alelia Walker, I think they totally missed the mark with this. Um, she was a really dignified person. And, you know, and they had her not being able to sing. Though Alberta Hunter, when I interviewed her, told me that she had a great singing voice. She was very much a patron of the arts. And she also, she did not have a girlfriend <laughs> named Esther. And, and the real story is that she and her mother had a conflict over two boyfriends, both doctors, both handsome. One was kind of a bad boy. One was a really good guy. And of course, she was more in love with the bad boy. And for me, that's a much more interesting story than an entirely fabricated And girlfriend. a relevant one to a lot of women today who it, are it's, living it's that just, It's classic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can hardly wait for you to finish this work you're engaged in now. How are we going to get to enjoy it and how soon? So I'm almost finished. I'm uh, editing the last seven chapters of the book. And, you know, editing takes, for me, it takes a really long time, but I'm almost there. So it should be out next year. Oh, I'm so, so looking forward to it. You know, when you think about all the notable people in your family, including yourself, and all the people you've met who are, you know, considered to be quite important in the world uh, theme of things, um, is there anybody you've not met you want to meet now? Hmm. Well, you know, I'm just, when you were saying that, I was thinking about, you know, how glad I was to be with you and to be with Sherilyn Eiffel um, in Las Vegas. I mean, Sherilyn is definitely one of my, my heroes oh, yeah. and the hard work that she's doing. Her cousin, Gwen, was a good friend of mine. And I, I'm fortunate I that- I didn't know that. I didn't yes. know that. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, that was because we were, we were actually, I think Gwen and I met in 1984 covering Jesse's campaign. A lot of the black journalists who were on, you know, were on the scene at that point, all of us kind of rotated in and out of the, you know, out of that convention. Well, of the people that I, I don't know, I'm, I, I have to really think about that, about who I'd like to meet. I think if I go back in time, <laughs> there's some people <laughs> Like, I really do wish that I could talk with Madam Walker. I really yeah, wish that yeah. I could interview a young Sarah Breedlove. Um, mm -hmm. I would love to be able to do that. Well, you know, so many uh, young people and especially women are listening to you right now, uh, whether they're looking to journalism or media as, as their career, uh, regardless of 
uh, of how they choose to live their professional lives? What are the lessons that stood you well that stand now? For instance, you know, Olivia, when you were just talking a few uh, uh, subjects ago about uh, traveling around the world to these different places, some of them not the safest places in the world during your coverage of uh, Jesse Jackson's presidential campaign, immediate in my mind was, were you traveling alone? How well uh, taken care of uh, uh, you know, were you, um, how much pre-planning, you know, those kinds of things about a woman out there who's really working out there. Um, share some of your advice to the people who are listening now. I don't mean just to women. It's just right. that there's so many women who by being female are going to have implications to how they work. Well, you know, the, one of the things about working in network television news is that at that point you were always working with a team. Uh, it's very much a team endeavor. So I never, I was not really by myself. You know, I look at some of the women now who are covering the war in Ukraine and, um, you know, knowing just how dangerous that was. I, I really, ne I never covered wars. And so I didn't mm -hmm. have that experience. Um, though, because of all of the death threats against against Reverend Jackson, we had to get um, bulletproof vests. We had to be fitted for bulletproof vests when we started on that campaign because there was just a lot of fear about about what might happen. But you know, I think if the, you know, for advice for young people, we were talking earlier about you know, me watching my mom as a boss and what that means to be a boss. And it is how you empower other people and the respect that you have for the people uh, with whom you work and who may work for you. Uh, and and not uh, being able to manage up and manage down, but really having some empathy for what people are going through. And I, when I look back at the you know the bosses that I had, some who were really horrible, <laughs> and some who were really good. And I think about the the ones who were horrible, and I thought, well, they were people who didn't really like themselves very much, and I don't I didn't want to be like those people. And then I looked at I look at other people who saw things in me that I didn't even see in myself. Sometimes they were older and they were mentors. Sometimes they were my peers, but they just had that knack for finding, helping people develop their talent. So that's the kind of person that I like to be. And, and at this stage in my life, uh, it's really important to me to be able to make myself available to younger people. Now, like you, I'm like overwhelmed. My schedule is crazy. I don't always have as much time as I'd like, but you know, to be able to find 15 or 30 minutes to have a conversation with a young person, to let them know they're on the right track, to encourage them. I just think that's so important because other pe people did that for me uh, mm -hmm. when I was growing up and people made time for me. So that's important. And, and I think another thing that that I you know I try to say well two things and it's about money <laughs> mm -hmm. one is one of the things that somehow I learned this lesson early um maybe it's because when I came home from college my first year and I had a two hundred dollar um credit card bill <laughs> mainly from buying records <laughs> my then, right right exactly <laughs> My father, you know, that albums were three dollars and sixty nine cents. Yeah. My father said, "Before you go back to school in September, you will have paid this off." 
And so I learned that lesson about credit cards, about not overspending and you know paying your bills on time. And that was really important to me, but that translated into what for me was kind of my escape fund. I always made sure that I had enough money in the bank that if I needed to tell somebody goodbye, and whether that was personal or professional, though I never, I never had to do it. But I need, I wanted that escape fund, that emergency fund that I could walk out the door if I needed to. And so that has served me well as I now approach my 70th birthday. And a lot, oh wow, I can't even imagine that. I mean, the energy, but you know what? We have to correct ourselves as well, Aaliyah, because my, my impulse is to say 70, not you. On the other hand, as responsible women, we should be saying, this is what 70 is. This is, what, this is what 70, this is what 70 is. But you know, mm -hmm. and, there, and there's a certain amount, I, I don't feel like I have to do anything anymore. I don't have to prove anything. What I want to prove is just that um, it's important to give back. You know, mm -hmm. you, you, somebody, as somebody young asked me recently, they were interviewing me and they said, well, so what's next for you? And I'm like, nothing, <laughs> which isn't, it, which isn't <laughs> entirely true. I mean, I'm still, you know, I'm still going to be on an advisory board. I'm still doing things. cars and your dad having you pay it off you know one of the things you and we're you're, you're giving that like to the young uh folks out here but i gotta tell you that's advice to a lot of people because over the last few years so many have gotten comfortable with low and no interest rates that they're getting shocked now as they hear interest rates may be going up and you know how do we how do we reinvent how we spend you know because most people spend and don't invest right, right. Um, and so, you know, they're having to think that. So I think your advice is going to uh, penetrate a lot of generations. Well, I, I hope so. And, you know, and I just think, I, I mean, I really am, you know, I'm fortunate that I, I did have a corporate, you know, a corporate job <clears throat> for a long time. But that meant that every, when I got a raise, I really did follow that advice. Put your, save your raise. Mm -hmm. Put that raise mm -hmm. in the 401k or, you know, put, make sure that you're putting, putting that aside. Don't spend, don't spend your raise just because you got it. And I look, I know that things are really challenging, especially younger generations. Student debt is really serious. And that prevents people from buying a home early and developing equity. All of those things are very real, but it, but I think it's important for us to be conscious of that because it does if you buy the $1,200 purse because it's cute and because your girlfriends are going to say oh girl where'd you get that you could have used that $1,200 for something else for compound interest so mm -hmm. for me it's like well no it's not that you should never splurge but I just really believe in making sure that you have that emergency fund you know, uh, 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 Bishop T.D. Jakes, I attended his International Leadership uh, Summit in Charlotte uh, just over a week and a half ago. And one of the 
recurring messages he was uh, sharing that was so well received and by many the first time they were hearing it. And this is a leadership conference. This is serious leaders from across the globe who were in attendance there. One of the things he was sharing is very much uh, around what you're saying. So you're sermonizing, girl. He was sharing, he, he was sharing, uh, you know, he wasn't telling people not to buy Gucci. He was just saying invest as well and own stock. You know, uh, he's at a point where he doesn't need a label to signify how well made or important his suit is because it's got his name in it anyway. You know, uh, it's his brand, uh, but not but. And his message was, you've got to be very thoughtful about how you're spending. And one of the things that I've taught over the years is learn the difference between spending and investing. And I sat there the tutelage of Bishop Jakes, and he's saying this to, you know, millions of people who are tuned in and over 11,000 in, um, in, in that stadium, I believe, he's, he's giving your message. He's giving your message to them. You know, it's okay to go buy the stuff as long as you're investing in yourself as well. Don't right. just buy the stuff, buy the stock. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, where, where, where are you putting the money? You know, and I think another another piece of the money, and that was very bad in C.J. Walker as well, wasn't it? Right. Yes. She, listen, I, and I, you know, one of the things that I noticed as you know, as I saw what she was doing, that she had started, you know, this business, and she was, it was popular. Lots of people were buying her products, but by the time she died, there were tons of people who were calling themselves madam this and that who who had developed other businesses because obviously it was a uh, prosperous but she had started investing in real estate she mm -hmm. owned property on central park west i wish i still had that property but in new york she she had built a mansion in irvington new york the wealthiest community uh in america but it was real estate that was her next move she saw the mm -hmm. importance of that so that's important. And she was encouraging her employees to buy homes. Uh, all of those things were, you know, were important. I, I will say one other thing about money and just how we, you know, how I have come to see how I spend my time. It, early on in, in, you know, at various stages in my career, when I would have a boss who wasn't necessarily in my corner or was entirely oppositional, and I was kind of stuck in my career advancement. And rather than just be frustrated about that, I found myself volunteering. I found myself participating in my college alumni organizations or other organizations. And when I was stuck in my career, I was developing leadership in other organizations. Mm -hmm. Those things didn't pay me. In fact, they, they want you to give money. <laughs> But over time, that those leadership um, skills served me well and translated to my career. And so, I one thing I do try to encourage young people is to you know be in an organization. You might, if there's something that you a professional organization that you want to be a part of, maybe you can't afford the dues. But if you volunteer your time, say, hey, I'm here to help with that conference, then you meet people who then help you when you need something, who can be, who can write the recommendation, who can mentor you. Oh my goodness. You know, you have so much to teach. I could just, I, I could just learn at your feet all day. And 
I, I, I pray you give me that opportunity as soon as you're feeling good about that. Janice, I, I, listen, I want to come hang out with you and just sit in your office for a few days. <laughs> oh my, no, let's just, sit, let's just sit in the home, girl, and hang out. Uh, but uh, certainly the office is open to you as well. Um, I, I, I was just thinking so much of what you're sharing and what you're teaching with a better interviewer than me could certainly be valuable to my alma mater, North Carolina A&T State University. And I don't know how open you are to that, but I- Oh, absolutely. Love. That is, I love, love, love doing that. I love speaking with young people. It's it's really fun for me. Well, I'm going to reach out to Chancellor and see if we can't get a women's leadership series going and have you just inaugurated. I mean, I think it would I'd be love so that. awesome. And you have so much to teach. We got to play uh, four for four before we- uh, close our conversations though, okay? All right. So, Aaliyah, I'm going to ask you four questions and you're going to give me four answers back, okay? And there are no right or wrong answers. Uh, and I'm just delighted to uh, jump into the first one because you kind of gave us a little bit of a leaning. I don't know if it'll be that answer. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to feed you. I'm not going to channel you any thought, but um, here's the first one. And here's the first one. You get to have anybody for dinner you want. They can be living or they can be transcendent. We're not talking about futuristic people though, okay? Um, who's at your table and why? Ah, so my table, so Madam Walker, definitely. Uh, Ida B. Wells would love to have her at the table. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, maybe Ada Overton Walker, who was a performer in the early 20th century. But it would be people, the people who are in my book, um, those are the people I would love to be able to have a conversation with them because I imagine, I read what they've um, written or what they've said and, I and I'm trying to imagine what they would be like. But yeah, those, I can and think those are four people. Each, go, go back to each one of them and kind of share why they are there biographically in okay. case somebody who's listening has been under a rock and doesn't know. No. So of course, so Madam Walker, because I've spent almost 50 years writing about her and learning her, but I, what I don't know is the details of the first 38 years of her life when she was on a plantation in Louisiana, when she was um, widowed and orphaned, and when she moved to St. Louis and was a washerwoman and then a young member of St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church, where she was just a poor girl who had a good enough voice to be in the choir and, and the middle-class women surrounded her, but how they helped transform her. So I wanted, I would love to talk to her about that. And I know from my research about her that she and her daughter both had amazing dinner parties. And in fact, the new book opens with the 1914 dinner party that Alelia Walker is hosting for her mother. And she has some of the Harlem leaders at that table. James Reese Europe, who was a very famous musician, um, the, the publisher of the New York Age, the other people who were at the table. So I, I can imagine this dinner table, which would be like that 1914 dinner table, but first Madam Walker. I would love to have Ida B. Wells at the table because we know now that Ida B. Wells wasn't a journalist and she was one of the early advocates of anti-lynching, this anti-lynching bill that's finally been passed by Congress and signed into law by the president, that she was talking about this in the 1890s, that she had friends who, 
who were lynched and she investigated lynching. And she and Madam Walker were friends. They became friends. So I would love to have them at the table together. W.E.B. Du Bois, um, who, who had been with the NAACP, who was editor of the crisis, uh, who Madam Walker knew um, and who for me, when I was a you know freshman at Harvard, he was my intellectual hero because I had read his book, uh, The Souls of Black Folk, when I was in a senior in high school and really searching for some way to understand race in America. And then Ada Overton Walker, who was the wife of a famous uh, performer in during the early 20th century, but she was a, a one of the first women choreographers. She was very talented. She died at a very young age, but that culture, what African-Americans were doing with music and dance and theater, uh, I would love to be able to hear her talk about what that was like. Well, you know, you talk about, wow, that's a dinner, first of all. And so I'm going to come and I'm going to help cook or serve so I can be here. <laughs> um, one, one of the things that uh, you talked about is the, your relationship to Harvard. And, uh, you know, I have the pleasure of being the incoming uh, chair of the Women's Leadership Board that is housed out of the Kennedy School of Government at uh, Harvard. and. It. I just, uh, this morning in reading one of my uh, morning reads is you, I read the news, uh, at top of it was Harvard and how it's looking to adjust itself to its history along racism and slavery. Right. And uh, uh, big, man big deal. Around thoughts, uh, meandering around the thoughts of what that will mean. Uh, what was Harvard like for you on campus? I know that's not part of our 444, but sure. you do provoke me to ask you that. What was your experience at Harvard? Yeah. And how do you feel about Harvard? Do they owe anything back? Yeah, well, I'm I'm really glad to see this this report. And Tamiko Nagans, who is the who is the lead on uh, writing about this, is the head of the Radcliffe Institute. And I'm on a the a board, the Schlesinger board there. So I'm really glad that um, Lawrence Bacow and the people who are on the committee have really undertaken this and are really examining it. And it, you know, this hundred million dollar amount that's been set aside, it will be interesting to see how that is. Um, have they reached you know, distributed out to and wrote? Well, you know, I mean, I I'm going to watch the um, the conference on Friday, okay. and because I've been in some meetings, but I'm not I'm not definitely not part of the committee, but I have been aware that, um, you know, that Tamiko Brown was working on it and knew that this was was coming. And then the work that Drew Faust began to do in 2016 with one of the early plaques. So it's it's important that, you know, that Harvard is doing this. Um, and, you know, it will be interesting to see how they lead, because we are in a moment where, uh, especially with the Republican Party, where there's an entire denial of the fact that that there's racism and that there's systemic racism and that there's a legacy of slavery. So it's important that um, uh, you know an entity like Harvard take a lead role because it will force the conversation. So I'm really glad that that is happening. And did you attend Columbia as well? So I went to Columbia for um, for graduate school in journalism. But, you know, for me, Harvard was a. I, I actually am so glad that I went to Harvard. It was really my dad who wanted me to go. So it was the Radcliffe was the you know the girls' school, the women's yeah. school. So I was admitted to Radcliffe, but at that point, all of your classes were you know were at Harvard, and my dad really wanted me to go. Um, he, I wanted to go to New York. <laughs> 
because I grew up in Indianapolis and New York was exciting and I wanted to be a barber. Big Apple. That's right. And my dad did not want me to be in New York at 18. <laughs> and so anyway, he did some, why not exactly. He did some dad psychology on me and 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 I ended up uh, you know, I ended up in Cambridge instead of instead of in Manhattan. It was the right thing and then Manhattan for graduate school. But it was really a, a overall a good experience for me. Now, I will say freshman year when my girlfriends were at Spelman and having a much better social life than I was, I was ready to go somewhere else. But once I um, found, once I started working at the radio station and I was a jazz DJ, and once I kind of found my niche, then I was okay because I had, you know, I found a little world for myself. And it also was, um, good for me in this sense that I had always been almost, if not the only one of the only black kids in the advanced placement classes. Mm -hmm. And so now there were a whole bunch of other black kids who were, you know, who were good students. And so I didn't feel kind of, you know, weird anymore. So that was important. And, and the community, the friendships that I've been able to develop that it, I'm really glad that I did go to school there. And that doesn't mean that everything was perfect, but I'm, I'm glad that's, that was my college. Well, I'm glad to have a presence on that campus as well. And I think that wherever we can uh, have a presence, we can have an impact. And so absolutely. And you have to be, you have to be present. Absolutely. I'm so glad to hear that. And I want to hear more about what you're going to be doing at the Kennedy school. Absolutely. We'll, 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 we'll meet up on that. I'll be yeah. happy to share that. Um, in this moment about you, I do have to ask you two for four, okay? Four okay. for four, I'm adding myself and changing it to five. I'm inviting myself to your dinner, okay? <laughs> uh, but, you know, let's go two for four. What are you listening to and right now? And that can typically be music. It can also be in a particular podcast you're listening to. I really want to know your music, though. And why? So, well, I actually, I'm, I do a lot of audible uh, books mm -hmm. and I'm listening right now to The Violin Conspiracy by Brendan Slocum. It's a novel about a young black violinist whose violin, whose Stradivarius violin is stolen. Mm -hmm. And he's from North Carolina. I mean, so it's a, it's a really good mystery. How did he get that Stradivarius? Well, that's, you have to read the book because I can't, I don't oh. want to give it, I don't want to give it away, oh. but it's <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, as an author, you are legitimate, right? Exactly. So people go it's a really, it's a, it's a good story. It's, you know, and again, on Audible, I'm, I love Audible because I can learn. So I, and I, you know, I haven't, I don't listen to as much music as I used to. You think as a jazz DJ, that's what yeah. I would be doing. But a, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine who has a show on uh, the Pacifica station invited me to be a guest. DJ and I went back to my long big wall of records. Is that the last job you did? Um, yeah, no, this was just for like a Sunday, one Sunday that she invited me to do this. And so I went back to my, you know, when I was in college, I pulled out some of my favorite things, but it was still the, the things that I pulled out, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Betty Carter, Mm. Dinah Washington. Oh, 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 stop right there. <laughs> Dinah, okay. Mm. So those are still my favorites. I'm just kind of old school in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, do you still listen to the vinyl? 
you know, I I have a whole lot of vinyl, but it's, you know, the, the turntable is there, but I haven't fired that turntable up in a long time. I really do on my phone. We'll download whatever. I, I'm I'm happy to pay that what nine ninety nine a month yeah. so that I can yeah. Yeah. load up whenever I if I hear something, you know, on NPR I'm, I might hear some new musician and I'll download that um, that artist and listen. So well, we got to always- keep paying into their estates as well. We got to keep doing that and keeping the keeping those alive. My daughter loves vinyl. She will buy to be supportive. She has that consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she- truly loves vinyl. And so um, typically if she's listening for her own pleasure and I walk in, it's going to be vinyl she's playing. And I was just curious as oh, a DJ, great. if you know, you live there. Um, yes. I, there are a whole lot of records in my house, but <laughs> I haven't played them in a long time. Mm-hmm. Let's go three for four. We're talking books. What four books do you recommend that our fan, you know, the people who listen to this podcast are considered our family. What four books do you recommend our family read and why? So um, All That She Carried by Taya Miles, which is about, people may remember this story, this uh, sack that a an enslaved mother gave her daughter in the 1850s when the daughter was being sold. And the sack included a handful of pecans, a braid, and a dress. And and then she said, and filled with love. And that uh, sack was discovered years later with with those words embroidered on it. And it's now in a museum in South Carolina, but was on display at the National Museum of African American History and Culture in DC a couple of years ago. But it tells the story of this, it traces this family, but it also traces Black women. So all that she carried uh, by Taya Miles is something I would really recommend. Uh, The Color of Law by Rothstein is about redlining uh, and real estate and why Black folks' homes are not worth as much as they should be because of the intentional uh, federal policies and banking policies. A book that really affected me when I was very young was W.B. Du Bois' The Souls of Black Folk. Oh, yeah. Because at that point, I had never read anything that really framed the history of racism in America. And it just had such a huge impact on me. Um, So that was that was important. You know, and then I would would love for people to read my book, if I can say that, on her own ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker. Absolutely. And when your next book comes out uh, in uh, in 2023, will it be? Please come back and let's talk about it. Let's do a conversation about the book. Well, you know, I'd love to. And and in part because Alilia Walker's, you know, it's like very hard to be the daughter of a famous person. And so she kind of gets in the shadows. But what I've tried to do with this book, which is what I tried to do with On Her Own Ground, is not just tell that person's story, but to tell the story of Black people in America. And I just finished, the chapter I just finished editing is Alelia Walker's visiting her third husband, who is the number two at the Veterans Hospital at Tuskegee in, 19, mm-hmm. in the mid-1920s. Mm-hmm. And that hospital, that, that hospital was built because Black World War I veterans were not admitted to the Veterans Hospitals in the South because of segregation. 
and they were put in segregated wards in the North. And so the President Harding agreed to build a black hospital, but that black hospital was um, opposed by some of the racist Alabama politicians. And they basically said, we don't want any N-word doctors. We don't want them running things. We don't want these black people to have any power. And they were using the same kinds of language and attitudes that we hear now about people who are trying to deny voting rights. So that history, I'm trying to weave that history in and to show how it still applies to today. Wow. Hmm. Okay, we're going four for four now. You batting a thousand. Uh, <laughs> if that's a good number for you. Um, <laughs> um, here we go. I want you to share four pieces of advice that either you were given or that you innovated um, that you think can be very helpful to our family right now. And if it's advice that was given you, will you please show homage to whoever gave it to you and mention them as well? I think it's important that we honor the people who teach and reach us during our journey. So I think one of the first pieces of advice I ever got was my mother telling me, make sure you have a dime to make a phone call <laughs> now. That will mean for young people, that means nothing. But the, but the essence of that lesson is make sure that you have your own money. <laughs> if, you, if, if you need to get the Uber, make sure you have a credit card. Huh? Huh? Make sure you have a connection too, right? <laughs> right, make sure you have a connection. So that was important. It's like, just make, make sure you can take care of yourself. <laughs> Girl, I, you know, another another piece of advice I got. Hold on, Elise. That is so funny because I remember that kind of advice too. You know, make sure you leave here and keep you, you know, so you can make a call. Wow. And you're right. The bigger lesson in it is still relevant, but um, we young chicks have lived through some change. <laughs> literally right. and figuratively. Literally and figuratively. Literally, right. But it, yes, when a dime could be a phone call, that was <laughs> when you had to find a phone booth. <laughs> that was that a was long decorative, time ago. Right? right. That when you go to London now and you see those red phone booths and it's all about taking a picture, right? Right, exactly. So another piece of advice um, years later, Alex Haley was a mentor uh, and a friend. And at one point, Alex was going to write, um, a, he was going to write a book about Madam Walker and do a mini series. And when we met, um, I had just finished my, that master's paper at Columbia. And he said he was gonna hire five or six researchers. And I said, excuse me, Mr. Haley, but I've written my master's paper. I'm, I'd be happy to do the research. So, it, so, so through that, he became a mentor and I did the research for a project that he never finished, but he came into my life in a way, I think, to create that runway for me to write my own book. But one of the things he said to me is, you should write a book. Writing a book will change um, the way you are perceived in the world. And he was absolutely right. It gives you a platform. He didn't say it in exactly, those, in that, exactly that way, but it was really important advice that you know, writing a book or creating some platform that allows you to have a place where you can where you can have a voice is, is really important. Uh, my dad telling me to pay off my credit cards, <laughs> mm -hmm. really important because the foundation of that is to make sure you have good credit, 
to make sure that you're not in debt. I mean, obviously there's some debt. If you buy a house, you're going to be in debt until you pay that mortgage off. But, you know, manage your money was, you know, was that lesson. Um, and then I would just say the other, the other lesson is have fun, take care of yourself, you know, and I just, I don't know that I can attribute that to anyone. You know, my mom taught me how to uh, take care of my skin. Um, that was important, but it, it's that self-care that's really important. And that has come from a lot of different people. And just from my own observation, when I see people who take care of themselves, versus people who don't take care of themselves. But self-care really, really You important. do realize, Alelia Bundle, that your first and your last answer to the questions I asked you were your mother. Absolutely. You and I, you and I share this. Whenever you talk about your mom, you get a little, you know, special glow. It is it, to to have a mother who you knew had your best interest at heart is everything. And we were we are particularly blessed because we have enjoyed the, I think the presence and the gift of women who were smart, who are smart women. Even now, my mom is where I go for my first and best advice. And she continues to deliver so smartly into my life. Um, wow, we have a lot to live up to. You know, um, before I met you, um, Madam C.J. Walker was always the answer. Uh, she wrote in my life. I think our great granddaughter is certainly a she-ro in my life now. And I pray a growing friend. Alelia, you are so giving when you don't have to give anything, except you feel it, you know? Um, you're so smart uh, and you could easily have as comfortable a life without ever using your brain. The list can go on and on about the paradox of how high you lift when you wouldn't have to lift a finger otherwise. Um, I don't know what is motivating you to continue to give to us. I certainly pray it continues. Um, you're incredible. You're incredible to be able to know you, uh, build friendship with you. Um, is pretty big for me. And I'm so well, grateful you've Dennis, come on. You don't, I mean, you don't know this, but the first time I saw you was um, in Washington when you were receiving an award from BET. You were on this on the stage and I was there. It was one of their their big awards nights. And and I thought, wow, that, that oh, woman, wow. yeah, that was years ago. That's been a long time ago. It, it was the first BET Honors Award. I was in uh, Europe. I was actually in England visiting family. And I got a call uh, from Debbie Lee. And she said she wanted me to be her first uh, entrepreneur winner. I didn't even know Debbie Lee knew who I was, although certainly I knew who she was. And um, I thanked whoever was on my team who broke down and trusted and gave my cell phone number to her. Um, and I remember going in there that night and I was so overwhelmed at the company she had placed me in. I mean, I'm there with uh, uh, Alicia Keys and, you know, everybody was singing and rocking to Alicia. We still do, right? You know, and people of that renown, um, 
it, 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 it blew my mind and you were there. Yeah, I was in the, you know, I was one of the people in the audience, but that was, that's when I really first became aware of you and so have followed you for a long time. But to then meet you when we were both basically getting our makeup done and for you to be so warm and so open to me, that means a lot. It really does. Oh, girl, I was nervous meeting you. <laughs> I was so nervous meeting you. Well, then we both were. <laughs> I'll remember this moment forever. And then sitting at dinner, as you said, uh, 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 it was so incredible. And, you know, we also had Yolanda Adams at that table. Right. And I don't know about you, but there have been many air uh, air uh, uh, travels, flights that I've taken that nothing but Yolanda was singing to me, getting me ready for something, getting me through something or getting me away from something. Her <laughs> songs have taken me there. And, and, and we all got to be with each other that night, didn't yeah. we? That was incredible. incredible. Let's make sure we're with each other again. Right. Well, I'm looking forward to coming to North Carolina to speaking with the students. Okay. And even right. if Maybe we have to start with something virtual, we can do that, but eventually something in person. Okay. I'm looking forward to it. And if we do it uh, in person in North Carolina, we may even get to go back to my hometown of Tarboro and we can enjoy some time at that house I got back there. Perfect. Perfect. It ain't fancy, but it's, it's home. Wonderful. <laughs> I well, love it. Thank you. From my heart to your home. Thank you, my new Shiro. Alicia. Thank you very much. My pleasure.